The name of this sermon is going to be called Searching the Scriptures. And we're not going to have a lot of verses tonight. We're not going to get through a lot, but I've been thinking about this topic and this sermon since I decided to go through Acts. It's one of those things that's been on my mind, I've been thinking about and praying about since before I even started. So we'll get into it now. It's in Acts 17 is the short portion that we're going to go through today. It's Acts chapter 17 and starting in verse 10. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Uh, if you remember last week when we were in Thessalonica, uh, thank you to Jake and to Anna for sharing about Anna's time there and sort of the spirit of the place, and then Jake teaching through that portion in Acts. But I wanted you guys to see these are real places that Paul went to, that Luke went to, that Luke is writing about, that this whole group of people went to and prophesied about or prophesied to and, and brought the gospel to. These are real historical places. We don't, um, as Paul says in one of his la- letters later, we don't follow up after fables or, or, you know, far-fetched stories. We are talking about the truth. We are talking about things that really actually happened to real people in real places. So I wanted you to see the pictures of Thessalonica uh, that Anna saw when she was there. Obviously, it's a very modern city now, but you can see some of the ancient things there. And so what happened there is Paul went, sort of stirred up uh, the people as he does, stirred up some people to repentance, stirred up other people to hatred and ultimately trying to get after him and kill him. Couldn't find him, so they just went after the last person they saw him with, which was this man Jason, arrests him. And so Paul's stirring the pot for all the Christians there. So ultimately here we see it's time for Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, and the whole crew to leave Thessalonica. It's time for them to get out of the area. And so they are sent away by night to Berea. Now, Anna also showed some pictures of Berea. I didn't know that you went there also, Anna, but uh, that's very cool because she was there. She saw that place and they still have the church. Like, this is where it all went down. This is where Paul preached and, and people believed. So these things still stand. So they go to Berea and it says, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews These were more fair-minded people, it says, uh, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. I guess not as many of them wanted to kill him. Uh, But it says, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So it's not just this blindly believing thing. Uh, There's obviously something to be said to have that childlike faith and just say, yeah, God, like I totally believe. But as Jake sort of talked about last week, it's important to be able to reason from the scriptures. We need to know what the Bible says and uh, know what to believe because the Bible says it. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight to to search the scriptures as the Bereans did here. Uh, and it says that they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, 
they came there also and stirred up the crowd. Again, the unbelievers getting angry and going to find a mob to try and kill Paul again. Verse 14, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. We're going to get into Athens next time, but tonight what we're going to talk about is Berea. And again, sort of how to search the scriptures like a Berean. But I want to, before we get into that, sort of back up and ask the question, okay, so why? Why search the scriptures? And the simple answer that I'll give is prophecy and its fulfillment. This is a massive reason to believe that, that the scriptures are true. Hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus, there were specific prophecies about Jesus that happened. There are so many specific prophecies in Isaiah, uh, not just about Jesus, but about other historical facts. And uh, I'm, I'm selecting Isaiah because his were so specific that the critics will say, well, there must have been like four different Isaiahs because this time span that he prophesied, prophesied about was so long that some of the things that he prophesied about happened long after he died. And so there must have been these people that were, you know, writing down as Isaiah after the fact. No, no, that's not true. Actually, what happened is God gave these prophetic words to Isaiah, and then he wrote those things down. And with such striking accuracy, those things happened because God is, he, he holds time in his hand. He knows all things. He is all powerful and is able to tell the future to his people. Now, again, it wasn't Isaiah just of his own power able to do this thing. God selected him and chose him to speak for him. Okay, so what the critics get wrong and, and have no argument against is the prophecy specifically about Jesus in Isaiah. We have manuscripts that predate Jesus by like 400 years of Isaiah that are specific things about Jesus's life that Jesus then fulfilled with, again, just a crazy amount of accuracy. So the critics can't say, well, Isaiah must have been after Jesus too. Well, obviously the manuscripts predate Jesus by like three or 400 years. So that's where the whole argument sort of falls apart. But prophecy and its fulfillment is a massive and great reason to, to trust in the scriptures. But I didn't really uh, unpack the question of why search the scriptures. I just told you some, some good reasons that they are trustworthy. But then the thing comes up that is said often that Aaron and I have talked about and I've mentioned here before uh, is, well, don't you know that, you know, the Bible was written by men? And the answer to that is, yeah, like, that's great. As we've talked about in this sermon so many times, God does not need us. He can do everything all by himself. He is the creator of everything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help, but he chooses us to let us be a part of what he is doing and fulfill his promises and fulfill his will. Second Timothy says that all scripture is God breathed and profitable. Okay, so God gave his word to his people to write down. So, yes, man wrote the Bible, but it was breathed by God. And 
what we can look at, and often when you hear these people, like, oh, don't you know it was written by man? There's so many copies of the Bible, and there's so many manuscripts, and there's so many versions of the Bible. How do we know which one is true, or how do we know that it's true? And the answer to that is something, uh, maybe I'll teach you a, a new phrase or something about this, but uh, something called textual criticism. Textual criticism. This is the study of ancient manuscripts, not just the Bible, but all ancient manuscripts. And the fact that there are so many manuscripts and that there are so many versions of the Bible is actually how we know that it's trustworthy. A textual critic will say, well, the more copies that we have, the better, actually. And there's a prominent Christian teacher, I think it was D.A. Carson, I, I don't remember if I read this or saw him talk about it in one of his lectures, but he is a teacher. Um, he, he's been teaching at Bible colleges and, and uh, seminaries for a lot of his life, and one of the things that he said that he does in every time he gets to the textual criticism part of his class is he'll write a letter to his students. Okay, He'll write a letter, pen a letter for them, He'll separate his class into different parts. Let's just say, for simplicity's sake, he, he separates it into four groups, okay? And of those four groups, he'll take one person from each group and say, okay, come here and look at my original letter and copy it down for yourself. You have a set amount of time. They all copy down the letter um, completely, and then D.A. Carson will take his letter and say, now, okay... Pretend I rip this up, I burn it, I throw it away. We do not have the original. But what he does is he, he seals that letter in an envelope and he puts it away and says, pretend we don't even have it. We cannot reference the original. We don't have it. And so then what he'll do is he'll say, okay, you four who copied my letter, give it to the rest of your group. And each of you make a copy of it. So basically his whole class makes a copy of his letter. Right. And so at the end of this whole exercise, what he'll do is he'll bring them together and say, OK, can we find out what the original letter actually said? And the way we're going to do this is you're all going to examine each other's letters and you're all going to give me what you think the original letter looked like. And the, the purpose of this is because some people, yeah, they forgot a comma or they didn't put something in quotations or they uh, forgot the extra S in this word or that. Um, they, they missed a couple words here or there. And certain things are not perfect. It's, it's a copy of the original letter, but it's different in some ways. Each one has these sort of strange little differences. And so what they'll do is they'll come together and they will take these, all these different copies, all these different accounts, and they will say, oh, you know what? Look, the majority of these copies uh, does have the comma here or does have this word, whereas some of them don't have that. Like maybe one of them doesn't have that word, but look, the majority do. So what they'll do is they'll look at all the different copies, and then they'll put together what they think the original letter looked like. And um, the guy who did this, again, I think it was D.A. Carson who does this in his class, he said that every single year he would open up that original letter and it would be exactly the same as the one that the students came together and said, this is what the original said. Now, the point of that story is that's what textual criticism is. And the more copies we have, the more we can cross-reference with one another and say, ah, now we can know for sure what the original actually looked like. So 
the fact that we have so many manuscripts is actually a very strong point. It's a very good thing for us to uh, know about these manuscripts and have scholars who can study them. And before we move on from this point, just for a little reference point, some of you maybe have read maybe Beowulf, you had to read it in school or something, okay, some of you. Some of you maybe have read, whether in school or just for pleasure, The Iliad by Homer, or you've heard of Plato or Pliny the Elder, some, some of these historical writers, okay? And just for a reference point, I'm going to let you in on a couple of secrets. The, the, the strongest one that we have of the ones I just mentioned would be Homer's The Iliad. And the earliest manuscript comes about 400 years after he actually wrote it. So we don't have the original, but about 400 years after we wrote it, we have the earliest manuscript. And we have 1,700 and about 50 manuscripts. All right, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. So we can pretty, have a pretty good idea of like what the original work of Homer actually looked like. Now, you look at uh, the um, philosopher Plato. The earliest manuscript of his that we have is actually 1,300 years after, after he wrote it. And we have about 210 manuscripts. Ooh, now we're getting a, a lot fewer here. I also mentioned Pliny the Elder. The earliest of his we have is 400 years after he wrote it. And we have about 200 manuscripts of his uh, natural history is the name of his writing there. As far as Beowulf, that I also mentioned that one. We have one copy of that. We have one manuscript of the story Beowulf, and it we don't have anything to cross-reference it. And it's definitely not the original, and it survived like a fire here, and somebody trying to destroy all these things there. But that one copy... Now we have more copies because we made different movies and remade the cartoon or whatever. And we have gone like way off the deep end with that story to where now if a historian a thousand years from now looks at, okay, well, here's this old manuscript. And then here's, wow, here's some really ones that are really later. And wow, they differ a lot from the first one we have. There, there's some vast, huge differences there. And that's why it's so important to look at, well, what's the earliest one look like and how many do we have from that early stage? So with all that being said, um, the Greek New Testament, okay? And if you remember, the most we had was about 1,750 of Homer's. That's the most manuscripts you've had of these ancient works. So compare that to the Greek New Testament. The gap there between the thing that actually happened and the first manuscript that we have is 40 years. Not 400, not 1,300, but 40 years. Within one generation of the things that actually happened, we have these manuscripts being written. And the number of manuscripts we have is 5,000 and almost 800. 5,800 manuscripts. That is incredible. And that is an amazing piece of evidence to have to say, you know what? Without a doubt, the, this, the Bible, this is without a doubt. The people who actually study, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, if they are textual critics, no textual critic will say anything about the accuracy of the Bible because the Bible is bar none the most accurate ancient text in the world. We know the words in here are what the original writers intended them to be. We 
can cross-reference them and know what the writers were actually meaning, what God himself was actually telling his people to write down. We have a very accurate understanding of what God told his people and had them write it down. So that's just some information that I need you to know of why we can trust the Bible. Okay, obviously it's the word of God and we can, we can trust in it because of that. But when these critics come against us, we actually have some hard evidence that we can say, actually, it's not just a blind faith. We can search the scriptures because we know they're trustworthy because of this reason and that reason. And because we know what the writers said originally, we also know that the prophecies were true what they wrote down. And look, we can th- look throughout history and match those up with the prophecies. Wow, there's nothing so accurate as the Bible. We have so much trust in the Word of God. This is the only, we call it the inerrant Word of God, meaning there is no error in the Bible. Some people try and say, oh, this contradicts this thing over here. It doesn't. We can talk about those things and we can have those conversations and kind of unpack some of those seemingly, you know, uh, contradictions or, or what people try and twist them into being contradictions. But... What I want to say before we move on from here is that even if you're not sort of a nerd like me, or, or if studying isn't really your thing, as Jake mentioned last week, we all need to know what the Bible says and be able to, quote, reason from the scriptures as Paul did in Thessalonica. And we would love to be like the Bereans who uh, searched the scriptures daily. So what I have here are just some, some tools of how to search the scriptures. And what I want to give you is uh, sort of this stack of books here uh, are some proper tools. And not only proper tools, but using proper tools properly. My, my dad used to say, no, practice does not make perfect, but perfect practice makes perfect. Um, and his point was, if you practice uh, sort of haphazardly, you're not putting everything into it, then when you go to play the game, it's not going to be, it's going to, you're not going to be at your tip top point. Put your heart into practice and that way when you perform, it will be that much better. So that's what I'm saying here with these proper tools, not only having proper tools, but knowing how to use them properly and coming to a fuller understanding of what God has said in the past and is saying for your future. Anna mentioned that uh, last week when she talked about Thessalonica, that there was sort of a sense of, of pride in the, the people of Greece there. And so uh, when she was talking about that, she actually mentioned it was because they, she, she said, because they knew everything that they were saying, the Bible scriptures that they were using, they're like, yeah, like we live in Thessaloniki. Like this is where these things happened. This is where you know, we know we're in the Bible and they, they had this knowledge. And so it was hard to break through their sort of traditions and, and get back to what the Bible actually says, because they thought they had, they knew it all. And, and the reason I'm talking about this is because, uh, the Bible actually says that knowledge puffs up. So you need to beware. Knowledge puffs up. Let's go to first Corinthians chapter eight and verse one, it says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So if you love God, you're known by 
God. Your knowledge is not important. <laughs> it's God's knowledge that is important. Okay, and I, I heard a teacher, a uh, Bible teacher, as I was studying for this, I was listening to this thing that this one pastor had to say, and forgive my bluntness, but it was just garbage. It was just straight up garbage, and he was marking things up and writing this over here and putting lines over there and trying to make sense of this. And the reason that it was garbage is because, as he said, he, quote, loves knowledge, right? And so he was trying to break this down as if there were two knowledges. There's there's a good kind of knowledge, right? And then there's this bad kind of knowledge. And if your knowledge puffs you up, then it's bad knowledge. And it's like, that is not what this passage is saying there aren't these two different knowledges. There is one type of knowledge, and you need to be aware of how you use, how you handle that knowledge. Romans 12 says to not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to associate with the humble. So as you learn, and as you grow, and as you dig through some of these books that I have here, <laughs> I, I, I want you to not get puffed up and think, oh, now I know all this stuff. You don't know as much as I know. It's like, no, that person is a humble person. You need to associate with with the humble. And as you grow in knowledge, you need to still act as though you don't know anything and just love people and love God so that you are known by God. So as you grow in knowledge, make sure to still handle it with a humble heart and not get puff headed because you think you know it all. This book right here, it's um, called, uh, you can see it, large letters, Systematic Theology. And there's a pastor uh, named Mark Driscoll. I really like him. Listen to his podcast a lot, read a couple of his books. And he tells this story of when he was a, a very early in his Christian faith. He was excited and he was wanting to learn everything that could be learned about Christianity. So he found a great church that was teaching the Bible. He trusted his pastor and he went up to his pastor uh, one Sunday, had his Bible under one arm and a book like this that said systematic theology in the other. And he goes up to his pastor and says, hey, hey, I just wanted to ask you, I, I, you know, I respect you and I wanted your opinion. Is this a good book? And his pastor sort of looked at him and uh, reached out his hand. Driscoll gave him the systematic theology book. He says, I'm going to hold on to this. And he points to the, the other book that Driscoll is holding under his other arm, the Bible, and he says, that's a good book. Read that book first. And Driscoll says, what? like, the whole, the whole thing? The whole thing? Like, is that something people do? Is that what I'm supposed to do? The pastor's like, yes, that's something people do. It's what you're supposed to do. Read that whole book way before you read anything like this. Re go home and read that. So Driscoll being the good student that he is, ran home and read the entire Bible much faster than his pastor was anticipating. I think he said it was like a couple of weeks. Just knocked it all out, read the entire thing, cover to cover, read the whole Bible, comes back to him a different Sunday and is like, I did it. And his pastor's like, you did what? It's like, I read it. I read the whole Bible. And his pastor's like, wow, okay, all right. And he's like, so can I have my book back? And the pastor's like, no, no, you can't have your book back. I'm going to hold on to your book. And Driscoll's like, ma'am, what? You, you stole my book? And the pastor's like, before I give your book back, I want you to go home, choose 
one book of the Bible and really study it until you really know it. Study it until you can preach it from memory. Understand the concepts, understand what's being said and really get into it until you can, like I said, you know, preach it from, preach the concepts from memory. So it just goes like, oh, all right. So he goes home and he, he picks a short book. He picks first John, really gets into it, studies it, studies it, studies it till he knows it and can preach those concepts from memory. And finally he goes back to his pastor and says, okay, I really dug into this thing. And, and I think I got, I, I got some really amazing things out of first John. And I, I, I think I can really, you know, teach people about God in, in a, in a more full way. His pastor's like, man, that's awesome. And he's like, so can I have my book back? He's like, Pastor's like, nope, nope. Uh, pick another book, go all the way through it, and and get to know it until you can preach those concepts from memory. And just was like, man, how how long is this going to go on? How long do I have to do this? And the pastor said, do that till you die. <laughs> so, so the the point is not that we should never read a book like this called Systematic Theology. Okay? It's, not, it's not what I'm saying. It's not what Driscoll is saying. He has since written a book called Doctrine. He, he has probably more than one Systematic Theology book on his shelves. He has this massive library. He is into reading, uh, as Driscoll says, uh, old books by old dead guys. Okay, like I have a small stack of books by old dead guys here. Um, they're a good thing. They're, they're an amazing thing. And uh, a lot of people have sort of done a lot more of the legwork. And when we're trying to learn about God, we can read these books and really glean a lot of wisdom from them. But those books and this systematic theology, this is not inerrant. This, the Bible, this is the Word of God. This is the only perfect book. This is the only perfect thing on this world. This is inerrant. This has no errors in it. So any of these books that you read, I always want you to, as as Paul wrote to the, right, we were talking about Thessalonians uh, or Thessalonica last week. Uh, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians later, and he wrote to test all things and hold fast to what is good. And this is how we test all things. You test everything that you think. You test everything that you read. You test everything that you hear with the inerrant word of God, the Bible. So um, you can't believe everything that you read. So some of these tools that I will show you here, uh, this is uh, a Strong's Concordance, and it's broken up into two different parts, all right? The Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew. The New Testament is written primarily in Greek. So this is split up between Hebrew definitions for words and uh, Greek definitions for words. And what you can do is in the front of the book is you can fi- find any word that is in the Bible. Any word. So if I flop this thing open and I look for the word love. Wow. Look, I mean, there's pages and pages and pages of uh, the word love. And it will show you every instance in the Bible that that word shows up and then it'll show you where it says it and then it'll give you a little number. Then you look that number up and there are different words for love, both in Hebrew and in Greek, and it, there are slight differences of meanings in those words. So it'll kind of give you a fuller meaning of what that word in the original text means. Again, the Bible was not originally written in English, so we can get a fuller understanding when we look at the original language that the original writer uh, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to 
right. So this is a really amazing tool and we can uh, do some amazing word studies. And there's a lot to say. There's a book here that I have by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. And he talks a lot about word studies and some people just grab a strong concordance and they go wild and they make some bad uh, conclusions. So there's a good and a right way to unpack this. And I won't go completely into that, but please see me afterwards or meet up with me at the coffee house if you want to sort of learn more how to uh, use this amazing tool. Uh, here's another one. This is a um, Bible dictionary. This is very, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's very simple. You flop it on, open, and look, the Mediterranean Sea. This is where it was and what happened around the Mediterranean Sea and what Bible scriptures reference the Mediterranean Sea and has maps and stuff. It's, it's a cool book. It's a really good book. Um, and what I will say about this is that this book and systematic theology, again, all these books, like a lot of the time, the authors will have a specific idea or theology that, in uh, my opinion, doesn't really line up with scripture. So if you are going through this, don't take it as gospel, right? You, you flop open this this Bible dictionary and you're like, oh, that sounds a little weird. I can think of a, a verse or two that disagrees with what this guy wrote in this Bible dictionary. Open your Bible, test what is said, and if it, if it doesn't agree, the Bible is right and that book, or at least that part of the book, is wrong. So that's the same with your life. If you have an idea, if you have a thought, if you have a theory, and you flop open your Bible and you test that thought or that theory or that idea, and you read something in the Bible that disagrees with what you think, you are wrong, okay? This is the inerrant word of God. All right, moving on. Uh, this nice, cool blue one, this is what's called an interlinear Bible. And the cool thing about this is that it has the original language here, and then above each word is the direct translation of that word, and then it also has the Strong's number, so you can look up the definition for that word in the original text. This is cool for when you're kind of going through and you're like, huh, like, this is such a weird thing. Like, I wonder what it says in the direct translation. You can open this up and, and it's good. Uh, another reason, uh, thing that I've used this for is when I was doing a specific word study that I was really intrigued about. And I got this list of all these references of, of where this word was found in the Old Testament. And I was just checking context and checking, no, there's different words that it, the English word is translated the same. And I was wanting to know like, okay, like this word shows up this many times. How many different words are there that are translated into this word? And the cool thing is you can flop it open and this write to that, uh, each passage, read the context and also see, okay, this word is this number. Boom, 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 boom. And I made a massive tally. It was like this big project I did, but that's uh, a topic for another time. That's one of the ways to use this tool. Very, very cool. Um, also, there was a question about the interlinear Bible that uh, um, was asked in another time when I taught this, and that is about our Bibles, right? 
isn't aren't these direct translations of what is actually said. And what I'll say there is, yes, there are different types of versions in English of, of your Bibles. Um, and there's different types of translations. Something called, uh, there's like three, actually four different types of Bibles. There's a word for word. There's a thought for thought. There's a paraphrase, and, and then there's just heresy. <laughs> the ones that they just literally just change the original text because they don't want God's word to say that. So they just, they just change it. So word for word, that would be your, um, New King James. That's what I use. King James, ESV, NASB. Those are some really good word for word translations. Your thought for thought are going to be your NIV. Uh, I think NLT is kind of a thought for thought. Uh, and then you're going to have your paraphrase, which is like the message where it's just like, kind of like you're, you read it and just like, you don't even recognize it as a Bible verse because they're just giving a paraphrase of kind of what the verse says. And sometimes again, those people who make those paraphrases are putting in their own theology and their own theories and their own ideas. And it doesn't always line up with what God's word actually says. So even test paraphrase quote version of the Bible with a word for word and with some of these uh, tools. But in your word for word, you're still going to have some times where it kind of slips into thought for thought. There's some like phrases or like expressions that if they are uh, translated directly, they just don't make a lot of sense. So even in your word for word translations, they will get to those points and like, man, if I directly translate this, it's just not going to make sense because you kind of need to understand the culture of what they're saying. I can't think of an, uh, an example of one right now, but there's there's a, f a few in there that if you just directly translate it, it's like, what is this talking about? So understanding the culture, the uh, translators will actually just say, okay, well, here's just like, it's a weird cultural phrase that we're just going to put what that phrase actually means in there so that we can get the heart of what's what's being said. So it, even though it's called a word-for-word -word translation, there are still those moments where it's like, eh, we're going to translate this in a way that the reader can easily understand. So... Uh, there is that. That is the interlinear. Um, also, it, one that I don't have here is called a lexicon, and that kind of gives you a deeper meaning. It's more than just the strong sort of, uh, the strong concordance has like a dictionary in it. A lexicon does add some cultural things and also different grammatical, uh, a word can change if it's grammatically just slightly different. And so the lexicon sort of unpacks some of those ideas, which kind of brings us, I don't, I told you I don't own a lexicon. That's because I use one online. And that brings us to the internet. And there's a lot to say about the internet. Uh, it is a really, really good tool, but there's some things that I need to say before I just say, use the internet. Uh, it's not always that simple because what I'll say about the internet is that it is an echo chamber. All right, we live in a world where our search engines will change. You'll, you'll get different results depending on what you've searched in your past. So if I, for instance, type a man after, it's going to autocorrect to God's own heart because I, t I search a lot of uh, Bible references and a lot of phrases that are biblical. And so my search engine sort of knows, oh, well, he's probably looking for this. So it will give me different results than it would for someone else. If they searched a man after, it might be, you know, whatever. 
a girl, well, you know, whatever that phrase will autocorrect differently and give you different results. Uh, we, we live in a world where if we don't like things people are saying, we unfollow them or we unfriend them or, or we uh, like hide what they're saying. And sometimes you're like, Oh, I'm so sick of politics. I'm just going to hide this person. You're not sick of politics. You're sick of that person's politics. So what's happening is the internet is actually becoming a, an echo chamber and it's, it's, hardening those lines between different ideas and it's making if i can sort of give you my social commentary for a second uh it's making people with different ideas sort of not even be around each other anymore and it's making like-minded people stick to like-minded ideas and separate from people who think any differently from them i saw a comedian recently that was talking about cats and dogs and, and he started his sort of segment saying man remember when you could like like different stuff he's like i feel like you can't like different stuff anymore he's like oh, i'll prove it to you uh everybody who likes cats raise your hands and the people are like Woo, you know raise your hands all right everybody who likes dogs raise your hands yeah he's like all right yeah notice the same people did not raise their hands for the two different things he's like man i, I like cats and i like dogs and, and that used to be allowed Right. And, and his whole idea there is it's true. We live in a world where even something as simple as that is just there's this hard line. Like, no, you can't like cats and dogs. You either like cats or you like dogs. And that's just how it is. But um, that's happening uh, politically. It's happening with within religion. Right. Even different sects in the same religion are butting heads and not getting along and unwilling to hear the other side. And a lot of that has to do with the internet. So with that being said, here's a couple of things about the internet, how to use it and how not to use it. Uh, number one, do not Google exactly what you want to prove. This is part of the echo chamber thing. If you have an idea, a thought, a theory, I guarantee you there are 10,000 other people who have the same thought, idea, or theory. Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. So if you're like, huh, I wonder this, and then you Google that exact thing, there will be some blog post or some writer or some theologian that's going to jump out and you're going to be like, see, I proved it. You know, you didn't prove anything. You just Googled your idea and found a bunch of people who agree with you. All right. So what I'll do a lot of the time is I'll actually read the opposing idea. Like, huh? I wonder about this. Well, what does the other side have to do? And what I'll say, even as I say that, it's jumping out at me. When you do that, it can be dangerous. So sort of bring a friend, right? Bring a study buddy, because if you get into some real out there false ideas, you can be dragged into a direction that pulls you away from the truth of the Bible and away from God. So be careful there. Uh, number two, do not stop at Wikipedia. Uh, some people will write off Wikipedia. Ah, oh, you got that off Wikipedia. It's garbage. I won't go that far. Okay. Wikipedia is a good source, but it's a good, uh, sort of jumping off point. It's a good springboard. You get to Wikipedia, you read some things. Wow, that's interesting. Check your sources on Wikipedia. What I will say about Wikipedia is they do try really hard to keep everything solid there. I was reading something about the Bible on Wikipedia one time. And it was this thing like, 
this article about Hebrews and one of the little thoughts there was like, some people say that Luke wrote Hebrews. And then there's a little like question mark there and you hover over it and it says, who says this? <laughs> and the idea, as you click on it, it says when you hear or see on Wikipedia or anywhere else, some people, and you give no specifics, that's just that guy's opinion. And there's nothing to back it up. And a uh, little side note about Hebrews, that's the only book that we don't know who we don't know for sure who the author is, right? It's a little bit debated, but the thing is there's so much rock-solid truth in Hebrews, you can't deny it. Most people kind of agree it was probably Paul who wrote it. It's much more polished than some of his other uh, letters, but also the concepts, the ideas, the thoughts, they're so Pauline in the way that they are said. Uh, maybe, again, a little more polished, but they are his same arguments. So a lot of people will say, yeah, you know, Paul probably wrote it, but we don't know for sure. So some people think that it may have been Luke, but who says that? And there's no evidence that it was Luke. So let's not even go down that. But Wikipedia, it's got some good sources and it's got some good information. Check your sources. A lot of the time there are cross references and, oh, okay, well, where did they get this idea on Wikipedia? You click on it and it takes you to some random blog in the dark internet you know, and you're like, shoot, like, maybe I'm not going to trust this small piece of information. It doesn't look that solid. Okay, so don't stop at Wikipedia. And we've all done this, right? Like, you want a quick answer, you Google something real quick, oh, Wiki says this, you know, that's the answer to my question. <laughs> and for the small stuff, that's fine. But I'm saying when you're really digging in, you're trying to unpack what the Bible says about a specific tough topic, don't just stop at Wikipedia. Uh, next, I have here blueletterbible.org. This is a great resource. This is where I read my lexicon, Blue Letter Bible. Um, it actually contains all these books that I just showed you here. Really great resource. And it's put together by uh, multiple pastors and multiple churches. And it's a nonprofit organization. And it stays afloat by people who use it, you know, a few times a year, they jump on and say, hey, like, do you mind donating so that we can keep this thing going? Uh, and what's really cool there is they have commentaries that you can listen to and read. They have, like I said, all these books that I have here, the Interlinear Bible, the Lexicon, the Strong's Concordance, all that stuff is there, and it's really easy to use. And the reason that I don't just start there and finish there is because you need to understand how these books actually work. You're not always going to have the internet. I know I went camping uh, one year and I was really like deep into this research that I was doing and it was at church camp. And so I brought my Strong's and my Interlinear and I was going through this this thing and Aaron came up to me and was like, oh man, like what are these giant books you have? And I said, well, I don't have the internet and I want to really, I'm almost done with this research and I want to get it done. So he was like, man, I've never even seen these. So I was like teaching him what these books were and like how to use them. So uh, that's why it's real good to jump on and use the internet. But what about those times you don't have the internet or God forbid your internet goes out. You need to understand that those ideas on the internet came from books and they are more trustworthy. They've been published. They are from very respected authors and, and people who have put a lot of legwork and study and thought into what they're, they're doing. But Blue Letter Bible is a great resource. Uh, but I really also want you guys to understand how to use these books that are, that you can use on Blue Letter. I, I use that uh, all the time. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, all, finally, number four here, YouTube and podcasts. This is uh, evil and wicked 
and glorious and amazing all in the same place. You can find some really garbage things on YouTube and podcasts, and you can also find some, some really great things. And there's some prominent Christian thinkers and theologians that have great podcasts and sermons that you can listen to. Sometimes at, when I'm at work and I'm doing some more menial tasks, I'll throw on a podcast, I'll throw on a sermon, and I will just get into it and listen to stuff while I'm just like working on a spreadsheet because that doesn't take a lot of brain power, but I'm receiving the word of God. Sometimes I'll be doing a study and I'll find a sermon on YouTube like, oh, cool, this is actually exactly what I'm thinking about and studying. So I'll just hit play and let that go while I'm working. So some great resources there. Again, test all of the things that I just said with your Bible. If someone in one of those sermons says something that is against what this says, they are wrong. This is the inerrant word of God. Some other tools. Uh, I mentioned these. I have a small stack here, but there's many, many, many other books by old dead guys. There are some great resources out there and some guys who really have put some heavy thought into the word of God, uh, some heavy prayer and study into the word of God that you can really learn a lot from. You can glean a lot of wisdom from some of these guys. And again, some of the stuff, even in these books here, these are some of my favorite books by all dead guys. Um, but there's even stuff in there that I'm like, yeah, I don't think the Bible actually says that, or I don't think that there's enough evidence to like prove that point. There's some stuff in there that you still need to test with your Bible. This is the main thing. All these books that I have piled up here, it's all about this book. If you don't know this book, then none of these books will do you any good because they're all talking about this book. This is the most important. Pick up your Bible, get to know it, read the whole thing, and really study whatever God is putting on your heart. Grab a book of the Bible, study through it, and um, get to know it. The last little thing I have here is something that many of us maybe haven't been to since we were like six or you know maybe twelve. But <laughs> the, your your local library. Uh, your local library is a great resource for any study. There is a ton of stuff that you can get at your library. And some of them are like really local and they're really small. But I will say last year, uh, Annie and I were in Chicago and she was in meetings all day. So I found like the Chicago library, which is this massive, beautiful building. And it's like floors and floors and floors of just books and stuff to study. And I was in this, in the middle of this study in Ezekiel about this specific thing. And so I went to this massive library and they had like rows and rows of books just on Ezekiel. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so sweet. So I like got this giant stack of books of on Ezekiel commentaries and different things about this specific topic. And I'm like, got this big pile and I dropped it on this thing. And, um, even there though, like, I grab some commentaries and some stuff, and as I'm reading, I'm like, like, that is, like, off the rails, does not line up with what the Bible says at all, so that's going to go in the no pile. Again, testing all things with your Bible, because yes, you're studying things in the Bible, but a lot of the stuff that's been written about the Bible isn't necessarily true. So, there's some great tools, and hopefully uh, some good thoughts on how to use those proper tools properly. Um... Again, if you have any questions, if you want to borrow any of these books, please see me afterwards. If you, if you want to get together and study something, like I would love to do that with you guys, but there's some tools, uh, on how to sort of study like a Berean. And I know these few verses about Berea 
in Acts, they don't really go into it. There's this small thing about they a lot of them believed because they searched the scriptures daily. They didn't just hear what was said and blindly say, oh, yeah, cool. Which, again, there's something to be said about that. But there's also a lot to be said about knowing your your Bible and knowing the scriptures. And when you hear something, go, huh, that's interesting. Let me test that. And then say either, yeah, that's amazing. Like, I believe that because it lines up perfectly with the word of God. Or saying, nah, no, that doesn't line up. I'm going to throw that out. So much inspiration has come from these few verses in Acts about Berea. There have been churches named, there have been organizations started because of the searching of the scriptures that the Bereans did. It's, it's inspirational and it makes you want to get into your Bible and understand it more. And, and ultimately we do that so that we can understand the heart and the words of God himself more accurately. So, with that being said, I'm going to close in prayer, and if you guys have more questions or, again, want to borrow any of these books, please let me know. Um, dear God, we love you so much, and I just want to say thank you for speaking to your people and having them write down your words, and then not only that, but preserving your word by empowering your people to copy down those words of those original writers. God, thank you so much for loving us enough to speak to us and include us in what you're doing and to continue to give us your word and to continue to fill us with your spirit and show us what you want to do with our lives, God. But ultimately, help us to test everything that happens in life with the Bible and help us to use these tools properly and in a way that glorifies you. Thank you for the opportunity to teach these good people, and I pray that you will um, empower us to be glorifying to you and help uh, our fellowship be sweet. In Jesus' name, amen.